Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi. Thanks for joining me this Wednesday, December 13th. Well, this impeachment nonsense is um, going to have an opportunity to move forward today. I have been watching C-SPAN because the House is going to be considering a resolution in any time now to authorize an impeachment inquiry. Uh, But every time I tune into C-SPAN, they're debating whether or not whole milk should be added to school lunches, which I didn't realize actually was an issue that Congress needed to weigh in on. So um, let's see, we just had the whole milk vote and I, I, I didn't catch the vote. So I don't know whether whole milk won or was defeated. Oh, I am so sorry. You know, I've been keeping an eye on this for hours and now I don't even understand uh, whether or not whole milk is going to win. Um uh, apparently, oh, wait a minute. Oh, they're still talking about whole milk. Never mind. I thought it was over. Um, but uh, Tom Tiffany, a Republican from Wisconsin, is now weighing in on whole milk. <laughs> you know, how many things we need aid for Ukraine, we need aid for Israel, aid for Taiwan, the National Defense Authorization, Um But honest to God, I've been watching C-SPAN for at least the last couple hours. And it has all been about whether or not we should allow whole milk in school lunch programs. Your tax dollars at work. So we will continue to keep an eye on this. But... um, You know, usually I share with you some things that people say, but, you know, you know, two or three minutes worth of somebody's comments. This morning, Hunter Biden held a press conference in front of the Capitol. Hunter Biden, as you know, was uh, requested to testify before Congress, but privately. James Comer's behind this. He wanted Hunter Biden, by God, to show up for questioning. And Hunter Biden, I think, called their bluff because he said, I'll I'll show up. I will absolutely show up, but I will only testify if the hearing is public because I want the American people, to hear this for themselves. I don't want you to be able to take what I say and edit it so that it sounds like something else or misrepresent it. I want the American people to hear what I have to say without any chance of any kind of spin or distortion. Uh, James Comer has now, at least um, with reporters, floated the idea that he might want to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress because it's not up to him to say whether or not the hearing will be open to the public. It's not up to him. 
So that's essentially him just refusing to come talk to us. Well, no, actually, Mr. Comer, that's not. It's not. This has been going on for so long, and they have been trying to use Hunter Biden for so long as a club with which to beat Joe Biden that um, I watched Hunter Biden's remarks, and it went on for about, I don't know, five or six minutes. And I decided to share almost all of it with you. There's in the beginning, he saw, he says, you know, he's not a perfect person. He's made a lot of mistakes and he's trying to make amends for them. He also says there are things in his life he's really proud of. He's really proud of his family. He's really proud of his um, college degrees and He's there's a lot of things he's proud of, too. So first he said, I've made some mistakes. I'm trying to make amends. But, you know, there's a lot in my life that I'm proud of, too. So that I'm not going to share with you. But as I was listening to it, trying to figure out how I could shorten it, I thought to myself, you know. What he said was really great. I mean, it was really great. This guy admittedly a very imperfect person has taken such a beating for so long that I think he deserves the opportunity to really set the record straight. So like this is a little over four minutes, a little bit longer than I usually share with you, but I think he Hunter Biden has earned a couple of extra minutes because he has been, he has really been knocked around and kicked around by the Republicans who are determined to use his foibles and his mistakes as some kind of club to go after Joe Biden with. And, you know, not fair. Not fair. We love our kids. We support our kids. Our kids don't always do what we want them to do. Our kids don't always take our advice. They don't always turn out the way we'd hoped they would. But we never stop loving them. And Joe Biden shouldn't be punished for loving Hunter Biden. Who, by the way, despite all the incredible pressure he is under, I mean, dear God, the man's penis was on display. Marjorie Taylor Greene, thank you for that, for blowing up a picture of Hunter Biden naked um, to retaliate against Joe Biden. I'm really, you know, if you know anybody who's an addict with this kind of pressure he's been under, I'm really shocked he hasn't relapsed. And I think it must be taking a lot for him to stay on the straight and narrow. So Hunter Biden, since Congress said, no, you can't testify publicly, he decided to make his own public statement today. And I really think it is worth a listen. So listen to this. For six years, MAGA Republicans, including members of the House committees who are in a closed-door session right now, have impugned my character, invaded my privacy, attacked my wife, my children, my family, and my friends. They have ridiculed my struggle with addiction. They have belittled my recovery. And they have tried to dehumanize me all to embarrass and damage my father, who has devoted his entire public life to service. For six years, I have been the target 
of the unrelenting Trump attack machine shouting, where's Hunter? Well, here's my answer. I am here. Let me state as clearly as I can. My father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad, and certainly not as an artist. During my battle with addiction, my parents were there for me. They literally saved my life. They helped me in ways that I will never be able to repay. And of course, they would never expect me to. And in the depths of my addiction, I was extremely irresponsible with my finances. But to suggest that is grounds for an impeachment inquiry is beyond the absurd. It's shameless. There is no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen. James Comer, Jim Jordan, Jason Smith, and their colleagues have distorted the facts by cherry-picking lines from a bank statement, manipulating texts I sent, editing the testimony of my friends and former business partners, and misstating personal information that was stolen from me. There is no fairness or decency in what these Republicans are doing. They have lied over and over about every aspect of my personal and professional life, so much so that their lies have become the false facts believed by too many people. No matter how many times it is debunked, they continue to insist that my father's support of Ukraine against Russia is the result of a non-existent bribe. They displayed naked photos of me during an oversight hearing. And they have taken the light of my dad's love the light of my dad's love for me and presented it as darkness. They have no shame. These same committee chairmen have engaged in unprecedented political interference in what would have already been a five-year investigation of me. Yet, here I am, Mr. Chairman, taking up your offer when you said we can bring these people in for depositions or committee hearings, whichever they choose. Well, I've chosen. I am here to testify at a public hearing today to answer any of the committee's legitimate questions. Republicans do not want an open process where Americans can see their tactics, expose their baseless inquiry, or hear what I have to say. What are they afraid of? I'm here. I'm ready. Hunter Biden making uh, what probably would have been his opening statement had he been allowed uh, to testify before Congress in an open hearing so that the American people could see and hear what was going on. 
Uh, not surprisingly, shortly after Hunter Biden uh, held this press conference, Jim Jordan uh, got a hold of a microphone and said, uh, well, did you hear that one part where he said his dad had no financial interest in his company? Ha! See, we got him. Uh, explain that, Jim. Well, he said he said specifically, my dad had no financial interest. So what other kinds of interest might his dad have had? <sighs> I don't know. On uh, CNN earlier, one of the hosts was um, talking to a Republican and said, aren't you afraid that this whole thing, this whole impeachment thing could blow up in your faces? And I was, oh, no, we got to do this. The American public are demanding it. They're not. And it will blow up in your face. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. A couple of the things that I want to get, um, I want to mention as we move through the day. I don't know if you saw this, but Andre Brower died. Andre Brower, who was remarkable at both dramatic acting and comedic acting. I I loved him in um, the Ad- Andy Samberg show, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where he played the gay police commander. Uh, he was really, really funny in that role. And I know that Andre Brower is known to most people for a lot of his uh, serious dramatic work, like Homicide, Life on the Street. And apparently, uh, he was one of the all-star cast of that movie, Glory, about the Civil War. I did not see that particular movie, but on social media, somebody was talking about how um, his performance, despite the fact that that movie was filled filled to the brim with A-list stars. And Andre Brower was not at that point anywhere close to being an A-list star. Um, he really stood out. Did you know that he graduated from Ignatius College Prep? He was 61 years old. And uh, his publicist said that he died after a short illness. <sighs> I'm sure we'll... Learn more later. Frequently died after a short illness can mean, you know, um, getting a very bad cancer diagnosis. Maybe unbeknownst to us, a while back he had a stroke, but they thought he would survive and he succumbed to the fallout from that. But usually if somebody has a stroke or a heart attack, they list that. They'll, they'll say, you know, he had a heart attack or died from um, the fallout from having a, a bad stroke, but died after a short illness lots of times means that very recently Andre Brower may have gotten a very bad cancer diagnosis. Because as you well know from your experience with friends and family and colleagues, sometimes you get that diagnosis and um, your remaining life is measured in weeks. Either way, no matter what took him from us, what a loss. What an amazing man. And if you're not familiar with him, find something. If you like comedy, 
go to YouTube or um, I don't know if if it's on a streaming service and, and stream Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I mean, the man wasn't known as an improv guy or a comedian, but man, he really rose to the occasion. And um, he's going to be missed. He is, you know, I was, the, the way I first found out yesterday is I was, I subscribed to the LA Times and I'm scrolling through the headlines and I see a headline that catches my eye and I think, oh, I, I don't even remember what. I was like, oh, that looks interesting. I want to read that. But as I started to scroll to it, a picture of Andre Brower started to come up and I was like, oh, well, uh, Andre, something to do with Andre Brower. I, I'm going to read that first because I really like him. And then to find out that what we were reading was an obituary. That was that was a bit of a shock, a bit of a surprise, a bit of a big bit of a disappointment. So Andre Brower leaving us at the age of 61. Um, some good news. Governor Pritzker today was um, handing out some gifts to school kids. And, and he visited one of our favorite places here at WCPT. <laughs> he visited anti-cruelty. He wanted to uh, point out that people should adopt, not shop, which is, of course, what we here believe. Um, you know, I'm not going to shame anybody if they go to a verified, legitimate breeder because they only want a certain kind of pet. Um, but don't go. Don't don't buy a pet at a puppy shop. Please, please, please don't do that. Please don't buy a pet at a puppy shop, uh, um, an animal shop where they have lots of different kinds of animals because they're virtually always puppy mill puppies. And as Craig Badagowski has told us repeatedly, uh, they tend to have Terrible health problems. Terrible health problems. So Governor Pritzker toured the Anti-Cruelties Dog Adoption Center. Uh, of course, uh, staff was there. Our good friend T Tracy Elliott, President and CEO, was there. And he wanted to remind everybody in Illinois that Anti-Cruelty has waived all adoption fees for the month of December. It is uh, their gift to us. And as Tracy Elliott has told us repeatedly, adoptions are down all across the country for whatever reason, especially when it comes to what are considered big dogs, which is generally 35 pounds or larger, which to me is, you know, barely dog sized. Um, adoptions are down. I don't know what um, what the reason for that is. You know, some people feel that so many people adopted during the pandemic that the appetite <coughs> for adoption just isn't there. For whatever reason, adoptions are down, especially bigger dogs. And um, the governor, kudos to the governor. You know, there's he only has a limited amount of time. And, you know, he makes appearances like this because he wants to promote certain causes. But he can't 
be everywhere for everybody. So he chose anti-cruelty and he chose to focus on dog adoptions. Anti-cruelty, waiving fees. By the way, um, if you're going to be shopping on Michigan Avenue tomorrow, kind of the other side of this um, this coin, well, actually, rescuing is the positive side of the coin. And uh, you probably have heard of the organization PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. They are going to be protesting on Michigan Avenue tomorrow at um, at noon. Uh, mostly they're going to be outside the H&M store on Michigan Avenue. They want to remind people uh, not to buy products filled with down. Down, of course, being duck feathers and, um, and under feathers. And they said that most places that take duck feathers do so in a very inhumane and cruel way. Um, they're really focusing. H&M was sourcing down from Vietnam and they sent people over there and got some really hideous pictures that we're not going to describe right now. But um, their argument is that you don't need to buy a pillow or a coat uh, filled with down because there are so many ethical alternatives. They are going to be protesting on Michigan Avenue tomorrow at noon. So if you're planning to do a shopping outing, um, just take that into consideration. Don't know how large a protest it's going to be, but it is going to be there. Okay, let's um, let's get moving along. We are going to be taking a break. We are going to be talking about the migrant situation. We're going to be talking about the media. We're going to be talking about Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to the United States. All that and more coming up today, starting right after this. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 a.m., WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There has been a lot going on with the migrant crisis in the Chicago area. There were reports today that um, after the fiasco with the permanent insulated tents on toxic ground that the state of Illinois put a stop to, um, Mayor Brandon Johnson has now agreed to rent certain vacant commercial buildings and uh, renovate them for migrants. But um, again, uh, getting a lot of criticism because the contracts themselves, which apparently were no bid contracts, um, are not being shared with reporters. But at least one building, supposedly the city's paying in rent with a, this is not rehab. This is not the cost of feeding or, or utilities for migrant families, but rent alone is going to be $1.5 million a month. So, um, you know, even when things move forward in a direction that seems to be positive, there's still a lot of questions about what's being done and how it's being done. The Reverend Beth Brown. Um, is out of Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church. Um, and we have spoken about 
the Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church and how, as a whole, it decided to create an, um, a side organization to try to help with this situation. Reverend Beth Brown is with us right now. Uh, thank you so much, Reverend Brown, for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure you've seen, I know it's like the front page story in Block Club Chicago today that, you know, um, the, apparently these commercial buildings have been rented by the city. They're going to be refurbished. But the Johnson administration is refusing to kind of make the contracts public, uh, is refusing to answer questions about who's being paid what or what the selection process was, how how some buildings were chosen and some buildings were passed over. Should we take a step back and say, okay, yeah, we need to pursue this more, but the big picture is now it looks like there will be housing in the pipeline? What do you think about this whole brouhaha? Well, I think it's I think the answer is yes to all of the things. It it's probably a better move than housing people in tents. And for a mayor who ran on a platform of transparency, I think I, I think a lot of people are going to be asking why why the contracts wouldn't be transparent. Um, always that makes people feel like there's something that's being hidden there. So I think it's all of the things. I do think it's a better move. And I think we as the public need to continue to ask for transparency and find out where all of the money is going because the city has made it clear that money is limited. So if money is limited, then I think everyone's going to want to know how how are the buildings going to be staffed? Are people going to be paid a, a huge amount of money to staff those buildings like we heard early on with the staffing in some of the shelters and um, and why, you know, I don't know the specifics about buildings. Maybe it's a building that's actually worth $1.5 million a month in rent, but it's hard to believe that it would be well, that kind of building. Block Club was reporting that the rents that the city had agreed to for at least some of these buildings were well above what the buildings, the buildings were available to rent. They were trying to get commercial tenants. And of course, post pandemic with so many more people working from home, they had a lot of open commercial space. But Block Club is alleging that the city of Chicago is paying a much higher rent than was originally being asked for the space. And when they asked the Johnson administration about that, they said, well, you know, um, um, renting these spaces for people is a lot pricier than renting these spaces for a business. That was that was the response. That makes no sense. Well, I'm sure more is going to come out about to me, this but I figured maybe people <laughs> smarter than me know what that means. No, that, that doesn't make any sense. So I'm sure we will continue to hear more about this story because I know everyone is wanting to make sure that. If the money is limited, which is what the city keeps saying, that it's spent as wisely as possible. So mm-hmm. it's good. It's good that we have the media looking into this. 
Well, since this is a problem that by all accounts is going to continue as Governor Greg Abbott of Texas continues to want to embarrass Democrats as the DNC approaches, um, what do you think about the situation? How what are your suggestions? Brandon Johnson comes to you and says, Reverend Brown, we need your help. We need a game plan. What's it going to be? Wow, I, I'd be earning a lot more money than I earn right now if I had you and all me the both. answers to that, right? I do think, you know, I, I will say, I think there are a lot of people in the city and particularly in the office for immigrants and refugees that are are working so hard to try to find reasonable solutions. I think the problem has been is everyone because the buses keep coming so haphazardly and there's no you know so far they haven't been able to get any sense of when they're coming and how many on each bus everything that's been planned for months and months and months has been very short term and i think we're seeing the results now of when you're only focused on the emergency situation you're not looking down the road at the longer-term solutions. And one of the reasons I launched the program that I launched is because I felt that there was a huge gap and that people really weren't looking at the long-term. And our program is about the long-term. And getting families into a situation where they're safe and Mm -hmm. cared for and independent and self-sufficient so that eventually they can be transitioned into an apartment and, you know, do great on their own. So I think, you know, the city's best bet right now, and I think they are moving in this direction, is to be looking at all kinds of solutions. And so that includes continuing to focus on emergency solutions, because honestly, I do not think we have seen the biggest numbers we're going to see yet. We think we've seen big numbers. I think I think this spring and summer, we're going to see numbers that are going to absolutely blow us away. And and the city needs to have plans in place for the short term, the intermediate term, and the long term. And we're lacking in the intermediate and long term right now. And I think with funding drying up, that's uh, that issue is I I don't even exactly know what to do with all of that, but I do think it speaks to we need to have more solutions that aren't going to cost $1.5 million a month just for a vacant building. Yeah. Um, I was talking to one expert who said that they were very concerned about, you know, because a lot with a lot of this, the city is saying, well, you know, um, we'll provide a shelter for 60 days. And I talked to one expert that said this, that's ridiculous, that if you want to, if you want to really get a a family on their feet, it's at least a a one year commitment. You know, when they, I forget what organization, uh, but they were working with um, landlords of affordable housing. And they said, you know, it's a one year commitment to getting these people the 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 housing they need, the social services they need, the legal help right. they need, the clothing and the food they need. She said, it's right. 60 days. It's like, it's like nothing. Yep. Yeah, 60 days. I mean, I do think, yeah, I, 
I don't know what's going to happen. You know, all the people that just got their 60-day notices that is supposed to come up February 1st when it's going to be so cold still. I can't imagine, you know, the city has said over and over they're not going to just turn people out in the cold. At the same time, you know, that's that's what they're telling people. And so they're also like creating and fostering a lot of uh, a lot of concern and anxiety for the people who are being given those notices. I think it's completely unrealistic, except in the case where, you know, I know the city launched what's being called the Unity Initiative, which is a very separate thing from our program, the Faith Community Initiative. And the Unity Initiative, part of it focuses on doing what they're calling fast-tracking people who are already working. And so they're focusing on um, men who are working, and the idea is they bring them into their program for 60 days, and in that 60 days, they make sure they have the documents they need, they um, they fast track some of the legal stuff, and then they're supposed to be getting them into a, into apartments at the end of the sixty days. And you know, it's possible that in some of those cases they will be successful. And and what that means is they'll not only find them apartments, but the people will actually be able to stay in the apartments because. One of the things that nobody is talking about is the rental assistance program, what's being called ACERAP, provided people with six months of rent, and Catholic Charities has been running that program. Catholic Charities has not kept any records of any kind, and so there is no way to know how many of the people they put in apartments and gave six months rent to ended up getting evicted from those apartments and ended up back in the police districts. We know some of that was happening. We have no idea the numbers. And we're also hearing stories that that landlords are evicting people because they're being promised another set of people moving in through the ACERAP program. So uh, and nobody's keeping record of that. And I, So when these know, families move into these apartments, they immediately pay the landlord the entire six months? And then the, what the landlords are it churning, getting those people out so they can get another big six month check. If the people, well, I don't know if they're giving six months at a time, but they're covering the six months of rent. And then if the family can't pay rent that next month, which often happens because again, what 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 people keep forgetting is if you do not have a work permit or work authorization you are going to be very uh, – you're going to be at the whim of somebody who's willing to pay you cash. Mm. Underground economy. Underground economy. And we have people – you know, one of our guys who's actually living in my church, he has had days where he's done day labor and not gotten paid at the end of the day. Now, a lot of days he has gotten paid, but, you know, you have people out there taking advantage of of a lot of people and – so they're susceptible. And also, if they're doing seasonal work, you know, a lot of them were doing landscaping stuff. And then as soon as it started getting really cold, all the landscaping stuff dries up. There's no work for three or four months. And so to, to say that you're going to put somebody in an apartment and they better, you know, they better be able to pay the rent after a certain period of time is is kind of wishful thinking, I think, in so many ways. And so 
you know, again, our program has focused on the reason that we try to house people for a year is because of the amount of time it takes to get the paperwork filed and for people to get their work permit or their temporary protected status or work authorization. When President Biden um, wrote that, uh, I think, I don't know if it was an executive order, saying that migrants from Venezuela who came to this country within a certain time frame would be allowed to get work permits. Um, that was this kind of problem you're describing is what it was meant to uh, alleviate the fact that, you know, migrants rather yeah. than, you know, laying around and, you know, and being idle could have a chance to actually earn some money to take care of themselves and their families. I guess I um, hadn't thought too much, though, about what kinds of bureaucracy or paperwork would be necessary to to get those work permits. I just sort of figured it'd be like, oh, great, we're handing them out today. On Wednesday, no. we're handing out work permits. Everybody show no, up. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, there's so much bureaucracy involved in all of it and and a shortage of workers. So to give you an example, right here in the city of Chicago, the city clerk is responsible for doing city key cards which for many new arrivals is the only form of ID they're going to have, or maybe their second form of ID. And we found out last August, we were told that the city clerk was stopping all city key card events until February. So a six-month gap because of the issues they were having and because they were short-staffed, and then toward the end of the year, because they ran out of ink and paper. Now, just to give you an idea of the bureaucracy, somebody trying to open a bank account, especially somebody from Venezuela, because a lot of Venezuelans do not have passports. They only have one form of ID. And if they still have that form of ID, they have to have a Chicago City key card in order to open a bank account, which again, is a first step among many toward, toward other things. And so at every turn, there are these major obstacles happening. And I think the paperwork issue, you know, you have to have somebody who knows what they're doing legally file that paperwork for you. For TPS status, I think the fee is $495 per person. And that's just for the paperwork. That's, you know, most lawyers are are donating their time and so, or they're being run through the big organizations. So there's such a backlog right now at at, at every turn. I mean, I can't imagine what's going to happen when the city clerk's office opens in February to giving out once again, city key cards. There's got to be 5,000 people now waiting for city key cards because they've only done select events during this time. So if somebody shows up at the city clerk's office trying to get a city key card, they're turned away because they're only doing special events. But they're only but they're not allowing the public or, you know, people that are not part of a particular organization to be part of the city key card events. And so, you know, again, they're short staffed. They need more people. Um, And unfortunately, they've been doing these events where there are four and five hundred people because they haven't figured out a way to give out city key cards every day. If 
you'd give 20 out a day or, you know, 50 out a day or whatever, figure out how to do that, then you're not going to have these events that have 500 people desperate for a city key card. In the summer, their city key card events, people in line were charging people behind them money to stay in line. Like it, it became a whole thing. And so on the one hand, I understand why they shut down the events. On the other hand, you have to do something. You have to let the, the steam out of the system somehow, or you're going to end up with this big explosive thing. And so that's just the city of Chicago city clerk's office, not being able to figure out yet how to get city key cards to everybody. Oh, it w- why wouldn't Anna Valencia, who's the clerk of the city of Chicago, go to somebody, say like, um, you know, um, Mayor Johnson's office, we're out of ink, we're out of paper, we need some emergency funding um, to have one person sitting at a card table in the lobby for four hours a day so we can so we can do this. I mean, who is in charge? Did Anna Valencia try to do anything to fix this problem? I mean, was it just one of those, well, throw up her hands? Well, guys, we're out of ink. We're out of paper. I don't have any people. So you're on your own till February. That's inhumane. I, yeah. And I know her well enough to know that I am sure she did not do that. I also know the city is well aware of the issues with the clerk's office. And so, you know, again, why not send 10 people from another department to her department to help out temporarily? Or why not? Like, let's get volunteers. I will volunteer my time. I will volunteer a day a month to figure out how to do city key cards for people. Like, you and I can look at it and say, there are a hundred different solutions to this particular problem. And I think what we're seeing at the city level is there's such a level of overwhelm and exhaustion that I don't know where, I don't know what's happening with the creative solutions. And I think people have just thrown up their hands um, for a minute. I'm not saying Anna Valencia has, but I think in general, like everybody's just kind of saying, we can't do this. We'll, you know, I think they're giving themselves until February to figure out some solutions. Um, and in the meantime, there are a whole lot of people that don't have basic IDs who need basic IDs. And that number is growing and growing and growing. And and I think we're seeing the same thing with the asylum process um, and work authorization process at the federal level. There's such a backup. When we first we housed our first asylum family back in 2019. And back then, you could file your paperwork, and within six months, almost to the day, you could have work authorization. These days, the wait is at least eight months long, if not longer. And so, you know, you can imagine, like, we've been saying a year should get people to the point where they get work authorization, they can earn a little money, save a little money, and then they're they're good to be transitioned into an apartment and, and, you know, they'll take over their lives completely. And that has been the way that it's been. But now if, if somebody's waiting eight months and, you know, when we get them, it takes at least a month or two to file paperwork. So now you're talking about, they're going to be living like with us, they live with a faith community, but it's going to be 10 months before they get official work authorization. 
at least from the minute they walk in the door. And that's, again, that depends on the goodwill of so many lawyers and paralegals that work for these amazing organizations who are hosting events and letting us partner with them to host events. So, you know, the federal government also just needs to hire a bunch of extra people and get it moving through the system. It's literally just paperwork. I mean, somebody has to look at the form, check it over, make sure it's right, and then issue the work authorization, right? Like, hire, you know, get the National Guard to do that on days when they're not doing any guarding. I mean, you know, like, again, people like, people like us can sit back and say, there are a hundred solutions to this. And I think what we forget about government is, um, you know, there just, there seems to be so many levels of you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to, you can't do this, you can't do that, that, that the system just gets stuck. And right now we are seeing a system that is incredibly stuck. Is there anybody that you can identify either locally, statewide, federally, in government, who's really, you think, doing a good job on this issue? Oh, my. Um, Here's what I would say. I would say a lot of people are working very, very hard. So I think that's important to acknowledge because I think the fact that things aren't happening doesn't mean that people aren't working really, really, really hard. I think, you know, obviously obstacles are being hit all over the place. And so where I come at it is, so who's good at getting around the obstacle, right? Like who's, I've said to the city multiple times, we have a lot of really smart people in Chicago that do a lot of different things. Fill a table full of people who are known to be creative and know how to get around the obstacles and get stuff done. Because, you know, an example, when Jeanette Taylor, Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor, did her interview with Ben Jarofsky, she said, one of the things she said in that interview was, I have 200 empty lots in my ward. So this is where I think, so the city needs to get together people who do quick and inexpensive housing, like container homes or tiny homes or something like that. Get some philanthropists together. Get some people who are working with migrants who want jobs and people in long neglected communities in Chicago, which we have plenty of, and create a building program. And let's start filling up some of those 200 empty lots that Jeanette Taylor has and make permanent housing for for neglected communities and for new arrivals. Like, we've got empty lots all over the city of Chicago. There's probably 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 lots that could be built on. So put this group of people together because long-term, that's what we're going to need. I I don't know where people think we're going to come up with all of the low-income housing we already needed before new arrivals came, plus the low-income housing we need now. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I literally don't know where all that's going to come from, as every neighborhood, except for the long-neglected neighborhoods, but even some of them are getting gentrified. 
So where do we keep where do we think all of this low income housing is going to come from? And, you know, if you're talking about paying rent of more than a thousand dollars a month for somebody who, um, you know, barely has work authorization, if even at all, you know, you're again, you're engaging in wishful thinking or you're going to need four families in one house. So, yeah, you know. And there was also, in addition to the vacant lots, I've seen pictures of housing that's actually owned by the CHA that is literally being left to rot. And I don't know if it was Block Club. They were like, you know, we've got this crisis. Why is the CHA not doing something with these abandoned properties that they either own or have control over rather than just letting them literally become infested with animals and um and you know people who are just looking for a place to squat yeah and that is such a good question and you know i know the ceo of cha tracy scott and she is a brilliant woman and i know i mean my best guess would be that it all comes down to money and you know you can build everybody wants to build a nice big new you know low-income housing, but they don't want to do anything to buildings that already exist. And so, you know, if the project isn't sexy, people don't want to fund it. And so, you know, that's where I say, like, let's get a ton of people together around a table and figure out how to do all these things. You could you could use people coming, you know, in reentry programs, you could train new arrivals on how to do all this construction to both fix up the properties that need to be fixed up and create some new properties on all these empty lots. And it it would take less money in the long run than what's going to happen if we keep doing these short-term things that cost $1.5 million per month for one building. Reverend Beth Brown, um, thank you for talking with us and bringing us up to speed on all this. I sure hope that meeting that you've been suggesting takes place and does so soon. Thank you yeah, for being I here. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Thank you, Joan. You're we are going to take a break for news. Because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. We have our Union Strong regularly sponsored segment right now, and we are welcoming back Ron Whittingham from Megant Financial. Uh, Ron has not joined us for a while. He's had other people from Megant Financial talking to us for Union Strong, and I have to say, Ron, they've been pretty darn good. You, uh, you have quite uh, a roster of folks who are good on the radio. Well, that's uh, that's great to hear, Joan. That's um, that's what we want to. That's what we that's what we need. Yeah, and I I think the last time one of your guys subbed for you, I may have said something about replacing you, but I just want you to know it was a joke. I didn't really mean it. Uh, my feelings aren't hurt. I'm I'm good, Joan. <laughs> okay. Um, for those people who've never listened to us before, they may be confused right now because I usually for Union Strong, that means we're talking to somebody who is leading one of the trade unions in the Chicago area. And you clearly are the uh, co-chief executive officer of Megant Financial. 
So let's back up for those of us who uh, for those in the audience who aren't familiar and explain what you do at Megan Financial. Yeah, so um, thanks, John. We're we're very unique. We have uh, we're financial advisors at the end of the day, which, um, by the way, was a good day today. First time the Dow Jones has ever closed over thirty seven thousand <laughs> points. So good day over here. Uh, good early Christmas gift. Uh, but we so we are financial advisors, but we're unique in the fact that all 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 we really work with is trade unions, uh, and and specifically the members of those unions. And we will go to the union halls. We will put on presentations for apprentices to make sure they understand the benefits as they start their career. Uh, we do financial literacy seminars for, you know, young to middle to, um, you know, a little bit uh, one of the two members. And then we do retirement seminars for the people ready to retire. So, uh, and all we do is we become advocates for those participants and we just make sure they understand their benefits and make sure they uh, apply for and maximize those benefits. And then after we do all that, we, we help them invest their money. And, and when we do that, we do it um, better than everybody because we know the, the uh, union plans inside and out. And we mm-hmm. do it. Uh, we give everybody, all union families, a 10% discount as well. So. Uh, we act as a fiduciary. So everything is, it, it's, a, it's a really good benefit for the participants. Uh, we, I always say that for the unions, the, the benefits that they create are their best kept secret. So they build these benefits for the members, but then they don't have a mechanism to educate them on what those benefits are. Um, but they have us and, and we help them do that. You said you act as a fiduciary. What does that mean? Well, it just means when we invest their money that we, the by law, we have to act in their best interest. We can't, uh, you know, do anything um, that we shouldn't be doing. That there's a lot of financial people out there that, that um, you know, that don't act as fiduciaries. We do, and uh, it's again, it's we do it the right way, and we do it inexpensively, and we have a lot of value. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about? You know, you don't have to necessarily name names, but can you give us some real life examples? Yeah. So, and, and this is more so of us at, at making sure that, that everybody gets their benefits. We become an advocate for those participants. Um, it was about a couple of years ago. I had an electrician, uh, local 134 electrician that I was working with, and he was uh, disabled. Uh, he got he was referred to me through his brother. He was currently living with his son in Tennessee, and he was disabled about ten years ago, and just became really disenchanted with, um, you know, with the union, with the situation, just because he couldn't work because of his disability. He really didn't understand everything. They kept mailing him things. Uh, he didn't understand it, so we just set it aside. Uh, and I, I met this fellow about 10 years after he stopped working, and he didn't, he didn't know that he was eligible for these pensions, three different ones that he, that he was awarded. Uh, and, and one of them, and, and I'm not even kidding, it was this time of year, it was like days before Christmas, he received a, a retroactive check for his pension for about $90,000. So Ooh. unbeknownst to him, I know. And then he, he was living with this kid in Tennessee. He bought a home in Mundelein with the, with the retroactive payment, and he's living happily ever after. But my whole point is is without um, somebody helping that person, you know, the union isn't going to go hunt you down saying, hey, you got to apply for these benefits. But we, we, we make sure we hunt those benefits down and make sure you get those checks. Um, I had a I had a widow here actually two days ago. She was a client of mine. Her husband passed away 
fairly unexpectedly. He wasn't he wasn't very young, but just it happened really quick. And and you know he was a financial guru of the family, and she just had no idea where to turn, and she didn't know if she was going to have to sell things to maintain her lifestyle. And you know I just sat her down, I showed her what her benefits were, and you know she just left left happy as a clam. I mean she was she was so excited about and just all the stress that she had. She lost her husband and how am I going to do all this stuff? And, and we alleviate all the financial stress. You know, we can show you what those benefits are. And it's really important to understand those benefits, you know, even as a, even as a spouse of a, of a union member, you know, sit down and, and understand the stuff because, you know, stuff happens. Yeah. You know, the situation you describe is not unusual that whether it's the wife or the husband, oftentimes it seems that there's one person in the marriage or in the relationship who's in charge of, you know, figuring out all the financial stuff, paying all the bills, which is, I suppose, if it's a, you know, <laughs> if it's a fair a separation of the duties, that's one thing. But then if something happens to that person, I've seen the person left behind can be lost, absolutely lost. What would you, what is, what would you advise couples as far as what each should contribute what each should know as far as their uh, financial health. Yeah, and, and I do the same thing myself. I mean, I'm not letting my wife anywhere near the finances, so um, <laughs> because we have bigger problems. You're a professional. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's uh, but it's right. I mean, I even days before, like the years before direct deposit, I would have electricians, you know, sign something for the bank, and the bank would reject their signature because they're. For you know, years their spouses signed their checks and they didn't recognize their actual own signature. Uh, but what I would tell people, Joan, to answer your question would be, you know, it's all about education, and I and, and we we harp on this with the union members. It's just you have to understand stuff. And, and I know fin- finance and financial decisions and financial markets and money. It's all like you know, people just don't. A lot of people just don't just don't want to grasp it. They don't understand it. And when you don't understand something, you don't want to deal with it. Uh, if you don't want to deal with, you know, the fact that, you know, hey, I'm, we're talking about life life decisions here, and I don't want to deal with that with mortality, um, you know, but you have to you have to figure it out. I mean, you have to understand the stuff because it's uh, it's just going to create so much more stress if you don't mm-hmm. understand. Yeah. Is there um, what would you advise a couple? I mean, sh- do people like just schedule consults with you? I mean, I know. You and the other folks at Megan's, you do big presentations uh, at union halls. But do do people ever like schedule one on one consultations like, OK, yeah, I work with Roofers Local 11, but, you know, I'm this age and my wife and I want to know how we can plan for retirement. Does that kind of thing something you guys do a lot of? I mean, that's what we do all day, every day. So when we do the presentations at the union, it's just to get them comfortable with who we are. And then at, at the seminar, they, they can, they have a comment sheet that says, Hey, call me about financial planning. And one of our advisors, Dan, when you, he spoke last week or two weeks ago, um, you know, he'll drive out to wherever you're at. If you're out in Mundelein, like I spoke earlier, or wherever you're at, hopefully Orland Park, which is where our office is, but, uh, and he will sit down with, with the participant and the spouse and create a plan. Now we will do that. For young people who are just starting out, we will do it for people nearing retirement when it's really important. Uh, and then we sit with our current clients. We talk to them every day. Now, obviously, nobody knows, like the, my, my example with my widow, you know, nobody knows when we're going to die. But 
I, um, you know, I do encourage people to have those discussions, at least to have a notebook or something on who to call and, and where everything's at. And, you know, here's a business card. Make sure you talk to the attorney, talk to the accountant, talk to my money person. And, and you, you got to have some sort of, if, if you don't want to have the conversation, you have to have some sort of map. Mm-hmm. Um, We are talking to Ron Whittingham of Megant Financial. This is our regularly sponsored Union Strong segment. We have lots more questions for Ron, and we're going to ask them right after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our regular sponsored Union Strong segment. We're not talking to any of the tradespeople today. We're talking to the man who is co-chief executive of one of the companies that helps union workers plan for retirement and be able to retire um, with uh, a nice enough portfolio to continue to live easily and comfortably. Ron Whittingham is co-chief executive officer of uh, Megant Financial and... We've talked about this before, Ron, but I think a lot of people are confused. Are all of the pensions the same in all the trade unions? Uh, no, they're not. And that's, that's, it's, a, it's a really important point to understand. I mean, you may have a buddy who's, who's in the trades or who's a firefighter or, you know, who's a carpenter or is an electrician. And, you know, he's, he retired a few years ago and, uh, you know, he's living just fine and this guy gets a cost of living adjustment and, you know, why am, why am I not getting that? So you really do have to understand the benefits of the union that you're, um, associated with. Some unions pay, pay a, a certain amount of money monthly, Joan. You know, maybe it will give you, depending upon your years, we'll give you two, three thousand, four thousand dollars a month. Um, some unions will give you that and give you a cost of living adjustment on top of that. Some unions don't have um, those types of pensions. Instead, they have a more traditional, like a 401k plan, uh, and, and you draw your retirement off of that. And when we talk about pensions, there's more more benefits than just those benefits to pay you money in retirement. You know, you have to think about, you know, retiree medical. You know, does your union offer you that? How do I qualify for it? If I retire, what happens to the benefits from my spouse and my family? You know, if I die, what happens? You know, if I if they if my union doesn't have retiree medical benefits, how long do I have to work? You know, a lot of these trade jobs are pretty pretty rough, Joan. Mm-hmm. And, you They're know, very physical. Yeah, I just turned fifty a couple of weeks ago, and I uh, you know it's it's you know as I'm getting older, it's just a little bit a little bit harder to do things, and, <laughs> and I don't do anything, and and I sit behind a desk or a, a steering wheel all day, so you know I don't do anything that that you know these. Uh, that these trade union members do. I've reached the age, Ron, where I can pull a muscles if I sneeze too hard. Yeah, I've done that. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not proud of it, but I've done that. Yeah. So um, how does somebody understand? Because, you know, i got to tell you, you have an expertise. You know how to wade through all these documents when my union sends me like one of those booklets uh, or when Social Security sends me a booklet, you know, I kind of glance at it, but it's just it feels overwhelming. It makes me feel out of my depth. And to have somebody like you 
be able to translate that stuff is is something that I think all of us could really could really benefit from. I mean, let's face it, if you're working in the trades or if you're working in radio, you're not a finance person, right? Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's true. You don't want me around anything. You don't want me around electricity. So I, I can help <laughs> you with your money. But if you want to turn the lights on, you're, you're talking to the wrong guy. Um, but, you know, it's, it's actually, you know, really important. You, you need to understand those things. And, you know, your, to your question, are all pensions created the same? And they're not. Uh, now, we do have relationships with, with the vast majority of the unions in the Chicagoland area. And we have relationships with their administrators. So you can reach out to us. And what we would be able, with your consent, to get information, your information for your career on, you know, if you're eligible for health insurance benefits. Mm-hmm. You know, what your pension might look like in retirement. You know, what's your balances in, in your annuity. Um, so we do have a relationships with most unions here, but if we don't, like your union, Joan, you know, SAG after it, we actually had, we, they reached out to me earlier this year, I think after one of your shows, but they had bigger fish to fry. So um, I think, you know, that conversation. <laughs> you mean like the strike? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, so yeah, more important things to deal with than Ron, but you know, you know, we would be, we're very, even though the pensions are a lot different, you know, when you, when you, we know mm-hmm. what to look for. So in those booklets, you know, we can pretty much take a look at that and, and you know, pull the information out. And, um, you know, if you have a pretty average situation, we can we can let you know where you're at. Um, and it's really it's really important to do. I mean, especially as you get you get, uh, you know, later in your career to understand what those benefits are. Mm-hmm. Um, and even for the non-union participants, uh, listeners out there. I mean, if you don't have one of these plans and all the union uh, members work extremely hard for what they what they have. But these benefits are truly amazing. And and the crazy thing is, is only 4% of Americans have those defined benefit plans that you and I have been talking about. Wow. Uh, so the vast majority of us don't have any of it. Uh, and if you don't start a plan, you know, early on, if you don't have a plan, you got to start a plan. And and, and you got to plan for it because you can't work forever. Um, Ron, we have a caller who wants to ask you a question, if you don't mind. Um, Andy, no, go Paul. ahead and uh, Paul from Chicago is calling with a question for you, Ron. And uh, Paul, go ahead hey. with your question. Hey, how are you? Um, quick question. I have a, my wife is a CTU member. Um, she only worked for CTU maybe a year. She had an accident, couldn't go back to work. She had always planned to go back to work and never was able to. So, the, you know, her pension money staff, there's only a year's worth of payments. What does she do about getting that money? So how many years, Paul, did you say she was in there? She she only worked for one year. Yeah, so yeah, she a lot of college have, and she had she had an accident, but she paid it for one year. So you so typically, um and and again, I I'm just this is a general situation. We currently don't work with CTU, but I uh typically there's a five year vesting. So if you haven't contributed or, or been part of that union for five years, there's there's no getting that money. But I can look into it for you. Every dime of it. Yeah, yeah, that's just the rule. I mean, it's, it's almost like uh, Social Security, right? So with Social Security, if you don't have your 40 quarters in, you don't get anything. Mm-hmm. So if I worked three, you know, if I worked, you know, nine years and three quarters of, of a year, I, I don't get anything. So it's a similar, very similar um, situation to that. But all these pension systems have rules. Typically, the vesting is five years nowadays. I didn't okay, realize so that. Just... Yeah, Paul, you you raise an interesting question. 
Uh, I didn't realize that if you were in a union job, that you had to find out like what the minimum number of years to be able to get some kind of union benefits. Does that vary from person to person or from trade union to trade union or? You know, typically, Joan, and again, I don't know if this is every case, but every case that I come across, there's what's called a five-year vesting. Oh. So, uh, I, you know, and again, this is something that we talked about, about educating the participants, the younger apprentices of the union. You know, obviously, Paul's wife was had an accident where she couldn't work. Mm-hmm. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of instances where it's like, hey, you know, at this job, I'm in it for four and a half years. It's really hard. It's really hot out. I'm going to go look for something else. So, but if you don't have that, that, that full five years then you walk away from it. So it's something, again, you got to really understand what those benefits are. And I know as a young person in a job, it's not important. And because you're, you know, worrying about your family, worrying about, you know, getting a house, all the different things, and you're not worried about your pension. But, but again, it's really important to understand stuff. Uh, thanks for that call, Paul. Um, actually, Ron, we have another call. Steve is calling in from the Gold Coast. Go ahead, Steve. You're on with me and Ron Whittingham. Yes, I was wondering if your guest could address this concern that many people have had for actually quite a few decades now. And, that you know, we've moved away from the traditional sorts of pension plans that, say, my father had when he was a steel worker into these sorts of, you know, 401k and, you know, you know, sometimes employers uh, will uh, sort of match your contribution and this sort of thing. But the difference is that, you know, when, sometimes when people come into the hard times, I knew people back then when the economy collapsed in 2008, 2009, and, you know, they were let go. They ended up, you know, using uh, a lot of what they had uh, stacked away for what was supposed to be retirement. And then you end up starting again from, from nothing. And the point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, the old pension plans, you know, they were there for you to retire. You know, you you couldn't tap into them, you know, when you were 39 because, you know, you were between jobs or something. So uh, there is this problem that, you know, we have these new sort of exotic ways of of hopefully funding a retirement. But uh, is that money actually there for a lot of people who, uh, again, need to tap into it or uh, given the the way in which uh, we, we move around from job to job in the modern economy, I mean, how much of that is really going to be there for a lot of people as opposed to the old systems? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, Steve. I, you know, I, and I, I agree with you. Uh, the old, I, I would lean that the old system is better than the new system. And a lot of these corporations, what they do with these 401k plans, I mean, you actually have to contribute your own money um, off your paycheck for them to match anything. Whereas, you know, compared to your dad, who's an iron worker, you know, he worked X amount of hours. He got some money on the paycheck and then he then money was set aside for him for retirement. So, you know, he couldn't use it. He couldn't spend it. But that does that. That is why these people have these tremendous benefits. Um, you know, right. I, would, if, I would say, I mean, don't, don't hold me to these numbers. Go ahead. It was supposed to be this triad that existed where it was. Social Security, your pension benefit, and something that you saved. And now, all too often, we're finding that people didn't save very much, and uh, the the pension benefits, well, they're gone because we don't have those kinds of programs any longer. So a lot of people are literally relying on Social Security as their only income in the old age. And then a lot of others are having to work 
part time yeah. or whatnot. You know, there's a reason when you walk into Walmart, you see somebody who looks like your grandparents <laughs> greeting you. They're not there because they love Walmart. Yeah, Steve, we're we are out of time. Thank you, thank you for the comment. And Ron, uh, clearly there are a lot of people who care a lot about these issues and would like some expertise. Ron Whittingham is co-chief executive officer of um, Megan Financial. And uh, they are one of the organizations that helps people retire and retire well and understand their benefits. Thanks for being here, Ron. Thanks, Joan. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am happy to be joined by former Sun-Times and Trib editor, Mark Jacob, who now writes a newsletter that we have talked about and you should be subscribing to. Stop the presses. Um, and Jennifer Schulze, former news director. Oh, former news director at Channel 9. And apparently they they have both sadly just hung up on Andy and me. Um, Andy, I'm sure, is furiously working behind the scenes to reestablish those those lines. Um, but this is our regular monthly segment on the media where we welcome your calls, 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. And we are talking about the... Wins and the losses, uh, if I can, if I dare put it into a sports analogy, which we are always saying is a bad way to go, um, about the coverage and who's doing it right and who needs to do it better. And I'm, I'm really sad to say, looking over, you know, all the things that we threw out as what we could talk about today is on the whole, it seems to me uh, that things are getting worse, not better. You know, I'm looking at all these articles and all the critiques and, you know, you know, things that people really blew. And it just seems like there's so much more of that than there is uh, uh, something where you can say, man, they, these people nailed it. Jennifer, what are your thoughts? Well, OK, so here's what I think. I am a big critic of the media focusing on bad news over good. Um, always. Most recently, I've uh, been very concerned about the emphasis on bad economic news, which is just greatly outweighs any reporting um, on good economic news. By the way, the stock market just hit an all-time record high yes. today. I know the stock market's not the economy, but I'll be curious to see how the mainstream media treats that um, because, frankly, they've done a terrible job of reporting on the positives of the economy. And I think that's led to uh, a lot of this. Oh, my God, what's going on in the economy when really it's going pretty great. So that said, um, I don't want to do the same thing about the media generally. Um, I think I think we do actually have a lot of really good journalism in America. Um, I, though, because of my guesting on your show and writing for Heartland Signal and things like that, I focus my attention on the things they do wrong, which, 
which I think gives me a distorted view of things. I, I actually believe that there there's more good than bad in journalism, but the bad is so bad that it can't help, like, make your brain explode. You know, it's like the headlines and the quotes from large news organizations like the New York Times or CNN that help drive the discussion through the rest of the country when they make a mistake. Um, like this morning, CNN tweeted something or, oh, God, not tweeted. They, it was on threads. Um, and uh, they said something about how Hunter Biden uh, GOP investigators were coming after Hunter Biden for flouting uh, a subpoena. And I thought my brain was going to fall out of my head when I read that. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait, these aren't super sleuth police officers. They're two congressional committee people who are of questionable character, in my humble opinion, and flouted. I don't know. It was just it just seems so. Well, that's there. That's the Republican wrong. language, because, you know, of, of James Comer wanted Hunter Biden to come testify before Congress. He said yes, as long as it's public. And James Comer was like, you know, witnesses don't get to tell us. And I believe it was Comer who said that he was going to consider contempt of Congress charges against Hunter Biden for not agreeing to a private testimony situation. Yeah, and and, and, the, and the, so the their coverage are... of that was terribly one-sided. I thought, and mm-hmm. and that's when you know, that's when. I, but I think generally the media is doing a pretty good job. But it's these mistakes that feed into. Uh, I don't know, Mark. What do you think? <laughs> well, well, I just wanted to say that on this on this whole thing about whether Hunter Biden testifies in public or not. Every time they've had private sessions of this kind of made up James Comer, you know, panel, they've come. James Comer has come out and lied about it. I mean, he, right. he's come out and characterized mm-hmm. what people said. I mean, so it's it's not unreasonable for Hunter Biden to not to want to you know testify behind closed doors so they can lie about what he says. And and you know, one of the people who's most appalled by Hunter Biden not showing up today. Is a guy who uh, James uh, Jim Jordan who uh, defied a subpoena still hasn't uh, answered a subpoena from uh, from a couple of years ago. I mean, so you know, it's but we're not supposed uh, to talk it, about that, Mark. You know, that's um, well, we the media has gotten bored with that. We nobody covers that anymore. Right. Well, I, and again, I, the Republicans are going to be Republicans, unfortunately, and they're going to just you know they're going to say a bunch of spin and a bunch of lies, you know, and and and. And, well, you know, those other uh, impeachments weren't real, but this one is when the exact opposite is true. But the news media, you don't have to buy into it. Uh, I mean, the, one example last night was, in, and I don't know why I even did this. I don't watch CNN much anymore because I'm kind of disgusted by them. But I was bouncing around on the TV, and I ran across CNN. I said, what the heck, let's see what Ron DeSantis has to say. I mean, the first 30 seconds, he says, well, I'm not in favor of electric vehicles because that takes us away from – from, you know, the, the, the other kinds of, of vehicles. And Joe Biden has been kneecapping oil and gas production in our, this country. Well, and, and, and the, just for, for months, people have talked about how U.S. oil production is at an all-time high. The U.S. is leading the world in this. And it's, and it's never, we've never produced more oil per day than we are right now. That's a fact everyone should know. But, you know, Jake Tapper says, you know, just nods and then takes us to a commercial.
And it's like, it's like, well, you know, DeSantis lie one, truth zero. You know, and and, and, and it happens know, over and over. Listen, they never learn I, anything. I have a question, Mark, because um, I've watched some of Jake Tapper, and more so than many, he some he seems to be a guy who is willing to push back. And I'm wondering yeah. if he a just didn't care because you know interviewing DeSantis has no real point, or b did he not have in his preparation, those particular facts at no. his fingertips. Now, he knew, he knew. But here's, here's what I think about that. And, and you're right, Jake Tapper, uh, he really pushed back on Comer the other day, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Comer, was, Comer, Comer was saying the absurd thing that the, the Biden administration was trying to cover up the Hunter Biden scandal by having him indicted. You know, like, and, and Jake Tapper could only, I mean, he like, he started like almost laughing at it. I mean, he mocked it on the air because it's such a stupid thing to say. But I think that they're told on CNN now that in these town hall situations, they cannot come across as if they're cross-examining people or as if they're the opposition to the, to the guest. They can't come across. Do you think that that's been an actual instruction from management? Yes. Yes, I think that that they've cautioned them that it can't come across like you're arguing with the guest. Why and, not? And therefore, well, I'm, I'm saying what they think. I'm not saying what but, I think. They but, should but, be, you know, they there's be. the bigger picture of a lot of people would argue that <laughs> argue that an argument like that uh, is compelling television. It isn't just the bland, you know, drone of politics, but two people kind right. of saying, no, that isn't. Yes, that is. No, that isn't. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that goes viral. That's the kind of stuff that gets posted right. to social media. You know, it's it's. You would think they would not only not be afraid of that, but that they would actually be encouraging their hosts to push back when somebody says something that is demonstrably wrong. Yeah, well, Jen, no, you know no, what no. that is, right? It's access, right? <laughs> access. That's I think what you're it's, it's, well, it's more than access. It's also, um, it's uh, quite a few things, I think. It's... Um, wanting to be sort of in the middle of the road, you know, so not being appearing to take a side in air quotes, not being combative, um, because if that's not the, um, the way you want the audience to perceive you, you don't, you want everybody to be uh, all your on air talent to have sort of the same, MO, right? So if they were going to be combative, they were all going to be combative or somebody was going to be known for being combative. But I think that they don't want to have too many dust ups intentionally. And I'm not even sure they have to be told that. Um, I think as we've talked about on this show before, news people have seen um, and personally felt the attacks coming when they say or do something that people don't agree with. And some of the Mm -hmm. threats are very real. And I think that, uh, that, that people like Jake Tapper, he, he's been in the business a long time. He, he knows who he is and, and how he does interviews and he is only going to take it up to so far in certain situations in a big national pant, show in the evening with one guy is not quite the same as doing the interview early in the afternoon on his, on his regular newscast. 
Um, so he might be a little more combative in the afternoon, but standing there on his feet, going toe-to-toe with Ron DeSantis, he's going to be, I would say, he's going to err on the side of being a little bit more mellow than going after him time after time after time. I don't agree Why? with that. I don't, well, because I just think they don't, they don't want to, they don't want the hassle. And if, if you do that, some, you have to be willing to embrace the hassle and the hassle is going to come. And, and listen, these guys, CNN just, you know, uh, did a deal with the Republican candidates. The idea that there's any Republican debate candidate debates when Trump is, you know, flattening them all in every state. Um, but CNN just agreed to do two candidate debates in January with the Republican candidates. Um, so they've done that deal. Tapper knows they've done that deal. The candidates aren't going to come on if, it, you know, they think that, that Jake's going to be too hard on them. Access. That's what, that's, that's yeah. what I'm getting at. Oh, that, come that, on. That, that, that. Ron DeSantis is, uh, it would not turn down that kind of coverage just because Jake Tapper might be tough on him. Come on. This is a guy. Well, wait, you say that. I don't know if you're, if you're, if you're serious, Joan, or if you're just trying to just goad me, because yes, they would. I mean, you, you look at you look at how they all go on Fox. You know, I mean, have you seen Mike Johnson sit for a, a serious interview uh, with with a tough questioner on CNN or MSNBC? I haven't. And oh, no, but that he knows he doesn't know anything. He can't sit down for an interview. I mean, you know, what's he going to say? Uh, let me get back to you on that. Let me get back to you on that. Let my, let my staff look into that. I mean, come on. This is a guy who was picked from utter obscurity. He's in so far over his head. He, he doesn't know which way is up anymore. Well, I just think that the news talent, whether it be live on a CNN show, going mano a mano with Ron DeSantis or whoever, or the person, you know, grabbing a congressperson in the hallway um, live on their show or tape, whatever, they they have a threshold. And it is not ever going to be as tough as I think it should be. Um, and as, uh, you know, continuing to ask the same question over and over and over again until you get the answer, um, the let's move on is the preferred way uh, right. to do this, as we've all seen. Yeah. Let's go on to the next question. Well, wait a minute, guys. We, we actually question? have a Let's caller who wants to um, talk about this topic. Stephen is calling in from Michigan. Stephen, go ahead. You're on with me and Jennifer and Mark. Hello, hello. I love the show, Joan. Thank you for, for taking my call. Yeah, I I call it being Don Lemon. Um, you know, this is what CNN is doing, uh, changing their programming. I, I, I do believe that the hosts are not allowed to see uh, combative, as what they would call it, and um, because they're afraid of getting the access. Remember when Don Lemon um, uh, starts back when a guy, uh, some guy on there told him that the way African-American men should be thinking, and, and Don said, oh, how can you tell me what a black man should be thinking? He was fired that next week. And um, you remember that? Yes, I do. Yes. Yeah, so, I, I, you know, I think it's, it's definitely a, a new uh, a policy, and, um, and it's really sad because I always think that they're assisting the Republican candidates by having all these 
uh, town halls. Why don't they have a Joe Biden town hall? But you well, I'm sure at some point they anymore. will. Don't you think I so? I think they want to. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. I don't, they think, have that. I don't think they will. Yeah, I, I'm doubtful that they will do it. Well, I guess we will wait and see. I would think that they would certainly uh, would certainly host something like that if the White House were agreeable. Um, anyway, Stephen, thank you for the call. We are going to take a break. We are going to be back with more right after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Um, by the way, guys, uh, just out of curiosity, since our caller mentioned Don Lemon, it got me wondering what Don Lemon has been up to and did he take a job and I didn't notice. Uh, I didn't realize this, but in, in reading a, a little bit during the break, CNN gave Don Lemon a $25 million payout when they Ooh. let him go. And since that time, he has been going to the beach and he and his fiance describe him as a house husband to their dogs. He said he is uh, enjoying life. He is relaxing and feels no immediate pressure to do anything anywhere with anybody. So Don Lemon update. There you go. Inquiry wanted to know. To me, a, a better example would have been Mehdi Hassan at uh, MSNBC. Well, he did his he was, show last Sunday night, didn't he? Yeah, yeah but he's, he's gone. By, he's gone at the end of the year. Oh, well, but he's not gone. He, gone. He's staying with the network. No, yeah, he's staying as the network as a fill-in anchor and correspondent. I guess. Yeah, yeah but he lost. He lost his show, didn't he? Yeah, he did lose his show, and. You know, whether or not, you know, he's a man of strong opinions and whether or not you agree with Mehdi Hassan, I thought that his interviewing skills um, alone were spectacular and they warrant, you know, I mean, put him on a Sunday morning news show. Um, you know, he was just he was really he was always well prepared and he didn't let anybody slide. You know, he did. He wouldn't have done with Ron DeSantis what Jake Tapper did. Yeah, he he always had the receipts. That's what that's mm-hmm. what I always liked about him is he always said, "No, well, here's what you said in you know 2016." Or he, mm-hmm. he always had he always had something ready. He wasn't just he was never like surprised by people's questions. I don't mean to put him in the past tense because yes, I think he is still staying with the network. He's I just staying think with MSNBC. Like, yeah. but here's here's one of the things as somebody who has um, negotiated not network level contracts but big contracts bringing people in and seeing them out or changing their position within a big news organization. Um, I can only imagine, I mean, he hasn't told us what happened right. or why the change, but ne- and neither has the network. Um, mm-hmm. But he's not a guy of few words. If he, yeah. he's agreed to the veil of silence. Well, the and network there's a said, lot of outrage about what what's happened to him. Yeah, there's a lot lot of online people are very angry. But I just want to say that if he felt he was wronged or something had happened, that it was you know he's not afraid to say pretty much anything. He'd well, be saying it. And the, the network fact that he's said not, that they wanted to they they wanted that hour back so that they could create. Um, 
uh, like one of those big panel discussion talk show type shows to better prepare and better position themselves for the upcoming presidential election. So that's probably true, but that's not the whole story. But the point I'm trying to make is that um, if Mehdi Hassan wanted to tell his fans what happened and why it happened, he could, unless he agreed not to. And I think that one thing that that is lost in the outrage, because there's been a lot of it, Mm -hmm. is, oh, my God, he's been wrong. Well, wait a second. He kept his job. And not exactly. uh, No, no, no. A definite demotion. He isn't out. He isn't out. He isn't isn't out, but he he was demoted. Sure. But again, he's not afraid to say anything. Right. But he has not said a word about of complaint about any of it. You know, and I I just think that's really interesting. So I think he either signed um, a NDA, which Mm. everybody does, um, or you know, there's something. I I I don't want to suggest that there's something weird going on. I'm just saying. For a guy, again, for a guy who has no qualms calling out anybody and is one of the best interviewers in the history of interviewing um, and not shy online and not shy, he is remarkably quiet about Mm -hmm. this significant change in his situation at MSNBC. And for everybody being mad at MSNBC, I just think it's an interesting situation. Because, well, you know, he was one you know, of only two um, um, Muslim anchors, and in in man. the current world's situation, I think you know the optics. Did no one say you know maybe this isn't the time to make this kind of a change? I mean, they could have done a number of things if they if they just wanted if they if they didn't like well, they what didn't he was doing. To. They didn't want to, obviously. Yeah. But you're right. I agree. As a as somebody looking in from the outside, but also having a sense of how, sometimes how these negotiations go down, it seems really kind of dumb. He's really good. And right now, do you really want to be poking that bear? I don't mm-hmm. think so. But they did anyway, which tells me that the story is much more complicated than any of us actually know. Well, Jen, I will concede, as somebody who also has managed, you know, media personalities, I'll have to concede that the public doesn't always know what's going on, you know, in the newsroom. No. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with media son. I'm a big fan of his work. But, I mean, I, I used to edit John Cass. Let's just say that. And, and, I, think, and I think the general public thought that he could spell. And, and, you know, they thought that he could get facts right. And the only reason he did is because he had evidence. So, so I mean, I'm just saying that people don't always really know what's going on behind closed doors. Absolutely. So, are you implying that you think it's possible Mehdi Hassan was uh, was somebody who wasn't as good as he came off on the air? That maybe he oh, had deficits no. that were maybe he asked for too much money. Maybe I mean, no. we don't know. Oh, yeah. But or, again, or maybe you just pick somebody off. I just, I just, I'm saying that you just don't know. I mean, and, but but his on his on camera work was superb, and I really miss it. I miss the fact and, that he's going to, I'm sad he, he's going to Again, lose he hasn't said a word. He hasn't said a word yeah. about it, really. And and that, to me, is telling. 
you know, it, it means one of several things. But it's, I just think it's really interesting. Um, but he is very good at what he does. And I hope that he continues to keep doing it in, in some capacity because he's nobody does an interview like him. Mm-hmm. I you wish know, all the folks chasing people in the halls of Congress would just take a moment and watch like a highlight reel of his to sit, to see how you keep asking the question. Yeah. <laughs> and and I remember there was one interview where he finally said to the person, I've asked you this question three times. You are clearly not going to answer it. So, like, now let's move on. But acknowledging the fact, just not moving on and pretending there'd been an answer, but acknowledging that there was no answer, clearly there's never going to be an answer, and I don't have enough time to, you know, keep pounding away at this question. He really, he should be teaching master classes in interviewing. Well, listen, if you were a young person wanting to work your working your way up in this business, you'd be figuring out how to, you know, do what he does all on your own. And wasn't he MSNBC's like most popular person on social media? So much of his stuff went viral. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, supposedly that was one of his big pluses for the network, even though he, they buried him on a weekend show, was that he had this multi-million social media following. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Okay, guys, we don't <laughs> have time to start a new topic because we are going to have to break for news. Um, I am going to be back, though, after news with Jennifer Schulze, former Channel 9 TV news director, um, Mark Jacob, former Sun-Times and Trib editor, now author of the Stop the Press's newsletter. Um, when we come back, though, I'd like to talk to you guys about the fact that the uh, last Republican presidential debate was on our very own News Nation, uh, which I've read a lot of things about why that was chosen. We're going to talk about that when we come back after the news. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our monthly media segment. I am joined by former Trib and Sun-Times editor Mark Jacob, former Channel 9 News director Jennifer Schulze. And uh, you may have, you probably didn't see it, but you may have read that the last Republican presidential primary debate was on News Nation. I thought that was surprising, and I read one article that said, that it was quite possible that News Nation was chosen so that the event would essentially be buried and therefore not tick off Donald Trump. News Nation, by the way, used to be, what was it, WGN America? We know the, one of the first super stations uh, that was carried across the country. But uh, since it's become News Nation, the audience has been teeny, 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 tiny. And uh, it seems like an odd choice for a quote-unquote prestige event. Jennifer from Channel 9, you want to weigh in here? Well, the one of the guys that runs that outfit over there um, is a big, has a big connection to Trump. Um, and so, and he 
brags about it a lot. Um, so if there was any, we're doing this to help you out, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, I, I also think it's a, it's a channel that, that says that it's nonpartisan, nonbiased, down the middle of the road, but is actually Fox Light. And so mm-hmm. it's, it was a good fit for, um, for the crazy extremism that uh, was spouting out of everybody's mouths on that evening. Um, it, it, you know, remember, Fox said for years, they don't anymore, they were fair and balanced. Just because you say you're something doesn't mean you are. And I'm trying to remember what News Nation's tagline is, but it's something like, you know, down the middle or whatever. They're not. Their management, much of their management um, is folks who got fired from Fox, including Roger Ailes' number two, Bill Shine, who's been at News Nation almost since the beginning. Um, and Sean Compton is the boss of all of them. He's Donald Trump's friend. Um, they are definitely Fox wannabes. And uh, let's remember, too, that the founding um, news management team that put together this effort all quit, uh, presumably because they were being or their news judgment was being um, uh, questioned by the management and they were being told what to cover and what not to cover, especially during COVID. And so they all quit. Um, so it's a right wingish place. So is it a good, pl- perfect fit for Republicans? Yeah, sure. Nobody watches it. <laughs> well, that <laughs> was know. kind of the, the, I think it was Jonathan last who wrote, you know, why would you take this prestige event that you should have everyone clamoring to air and bury it on a on a station that on a on a good month had 67,000 viewers? Well, I'd argue whether it's a prestige event, but yes, that's a, it's an interesting question. And my guess is that there's, you know, we're, you help us, we'll help you. Um, we're friends. Let's do this. Um, and maybe nobody else wanted it. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think the fact that it was on News Nation is such a big deal. I think that the bigger deal is the continuing, um, you know, right-wing extremists, you know, Rumble was still the streaming buddy uh, for the debate, for that debate. Um, Megan Kelly, who really has shown herself to be quite an extremist, was one of the moderators. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I thought it was a perfect fit for all of them. Um the, one, the only one who seemed out of place was Elizabeth Fargus, who has been considered a, you know, a mainstream news person. Yeah. Mark, thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, who's their, their big anchor at night? Uh, one of them is Chris Cuomo. Chris Cuomo. And, I, and why was Chris Cuomo available? Well, he was available because he got fired by CNN for secretly working for his um his handsy uh, brother, who was uh, governor of New York when his uh, brother was uh, in big trouble and eventually had to quit. Uh, and Cuomo committed, you know, journalism sin number one, which is pretending to be objective and uh, and, and 
being, you know, working as sources, but he wasn't working as sources for the CNN. He was working for his brother. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I mean, this is the idea the fact that he landed, he found a soft spot to land. I'm not sure how soft uh, News Nation is because of its reach, but, but, but they're acting like he's some, you know, gift to journalism, quite the opposite. I mean, frankly, I don't think he should have ever worked again. And, and I noticed on, uh, uh, on social media that he's his big guest, uh, I think it's tonight, is Bill O'Reilly. You know, that old uh, war horse from uh, Fox News, who's just, a, you know, as butt right wing as you can get. So, you know, and the two of them on the air at the same time was, you know, you know, please, you know. So and my, I think I, it's I interesting. Chris Cuomo yeah. has become himself, it seems to me, far more right wing than I ever got a sense of him being when he was on the air at CNN. Does does anybody else, did anybody else notice that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think he's posturing. I mean, it it just goes to show. I think that there are people like Megyn Kelly is another good example of somebody who who really is just kind of finding a spot that can make them the most money, you know, and and, Mm -hmm. or make their or make their career survive. But, um, you know, and. It, it, it really bothers me. Somebody when they, when you, you know Tucker Carlson the same way. You know he was on MSNBC for a while. I mean, yes. he, he hasn't been. He hasn't been this kind of fascist spokesman his whole career. He was he was different back then. And but he just like many people who are taking advantage of the, you know the rise of fascism in America. He's just finding his, his own place in it. Lee Stefanik is to me among politicians is the best example of that. Who you know, he ran as a just dead solid moderate reasonable Republican. And then when she saw the opening with Trump, she just went to, you know, just mm-hmm. full MAGA, full uh, great replacement theory and all this other crazy stuff. Yep. Well, and Chris Cuomo, I mean, you know, you, do you ever really know when somebody, this is who they were and they were, you know, when are they pretending? Was he yes, pretending exactly. Is he pretending now? But he just recently said that he's open to voting for Trump. Um, which right. I guess now that he's a right wing opinion person, who he's voting for and who he's not is not off the table. But, you know, a year or so ago, he was a straight news anchor on a, a, a middle of the road news program. Um, and it's quite, I think, a dramatic shift, but not unlike the shift that Megyn Kelly made after she went to NBC, got fired from NBC, and came back as a right-wing extremist radio host. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when are they who they really are? Do they yeah. even know? Does it matter? Because they're spewing, you know, bad stuff. And, you know, just to kind of circle back to Amedi Hassan talking about how He's still an employee of MSNBC, even though they took his show away and he hasn't said anything publicly about this um, apparent demotion. But look at Chris Cuomo. I mean, Mehdi Hassan seems a little too uh, outspoken to be a good fit for CNN. He sure as hell isn't a good fit for Fox. So where does Mehdi Hassan go? I mean, look at Chris Cuomo. He got kicked out of CNN and you know he's in the he's in the hinterlands of journalism now. Well, he's not going anywhere. He's going to stay right where he is. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, but I think that that might be part of the reason why we're not seeing Mehdi Hassan um, raise a raise a stink, because if he left MSNBC, you know, without the twenty five million dollar payout that Don Lemon got over at CNN, where would he go? I mean, think about it. Who's going to hire him? Maybe a Mm -hmm. local station somewhere? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's a a very good point. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, kids. Well, I like the the Don Lemon answer, which is, you know, just take care of your pets and enjoy your $25 million buyout. You know, I got to tell you, WCPT writes me a check for $25 million. I don't know how much longer I will I will be here behind the microphone. I might just uh, I might just Don Lemon it. <laughs> the new and, verb, Dr. Don yeah, Lemon. Yeah, Don Lemon it. I think that is that is a verb. I think that's absolutely a verb. Um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, um, we've talked about you know uh, coverage of the economy. We've talked about um, some of the doings that are going on uh, with personnel. I want to talk about coverage of Donald Trump, um, who he is now, who he might be in the future. We are doing our regular monthly media segment. We'll be back with Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob, and me right after this. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Donald Trump is barreling his way to the Republican nomination for president. And he seems, in my humble opinion, to be getting treated pretty gently by the mainstream media. This is our regular media segment. I'm joined by Jennifer Schulze, who's the former Channel 9 news director, Mark Jacob, former editor at the Sun-Times and the Trib. And, you know, um, Joe Biden makes a gaffe, and it is solid front-page news. Donald Trump seems to not know where he is, seems to not know who he's running against, seems to not always know what word he's trying to say. And are we just so used to all the outrageousness of him that none of this none of this makes the impression that it that it should? It just seems to me that it, I mean, when you start putting them together, the gaps, he said he was running against Obama. You know, he didn't know what city he was in. I mean, and yet it's just it doesn't seem to get um, any play in the outrage machine. Mark, thoughts on that? Well, uh, my main thought is that I think that news media make too much of gaffes, you know, all, all together of, of anyone. But they certainly have not played it fair uh, with that. And um, especially when they make such a big deal about Biden's age, you know, Trump three years younger, uh, you know, they're both kind of in the same general category as far as, you know, how vibrant and and how old they are and how, you know, how old their brain is. And, and they're both going to make, you know, mistakes, but Biden's always seem to be magnified. Uh, yes. I, but I, I'll tell you one thing, about, but I, I do not, I would rather them not write about Trump forgetting who the president is, which he has done repeatedly, thought he was that Obama was president. 
But I want them to really focus on, you know, all the outrageous stuff where that Trump says he wants to send the military into American cities without an invitation, that he wants to that he wants to terminate the Constitution, that he wants to shoot shoplifters or suspected shoplifters on site. That he, I mean, all this, all this. And anybody convicted of drugs is also going to be executed. Right, right. And then Mark Milley, the general, you know, he should be executed too. And so those are the things. I mean, those are not gaps. Those are somebody with scary policies who who we should not let anywhere near the White House. And and so so I guess the, to me, I, I think that they. Uh, I don't want them to spend more time on the gaps. I want them to spend more time on the really solid, specific things that Trump does and says that tell you that he's a danger to our democracy. Uh, Jen? I agree with Mark. Um, I think this is bigger than gas, and I think gas uh, are an easy an easy way to cover something without really covering it. Oh, look what he said, because... Actual reporting, again, on the ground, talking to people and trying to understand an issue and then sharing that with your audience is time consuming. It's not, you know, it just, it's work. It's a lot easier to do stenography journalism and let somebody, you know, just requote somebody and there it is and focus on the superficial. Um, but I, you know, while we've seen some of the consequences stories, I have a couple worries about it. Um, I'm glad that places like the Atlantic are doing that, and the Economist, and different places. I think if the the people who run those play, those news organizations um, would take down the paywalls so that more people could see their work in the next year. I think that that would be, you know, I know some news organizations are really struggling financially and paywalls are helping them stay afloat, but a lot of them are doing okay. And when you write something as consequential as the Atlantic did recently, where the entire, entire magazine is about the Trump threat and what will happen in different aspects of society, um, we all ought to be able to read that. And that ought to be like a donation to America. Um, So, um, you know, the democracy dies behind a paywall stuff, I think, is real. And I think um, news organizations need to decide, you know, where their values are uh, in the next year. If you're really worried and you're doing this kind of coverage, make sure more people can see it. That Mm -hmm. said... I worry that um, we might all be talking to ourselves. Um, You know, Amanda Marcotte wrote a really interesting piece in Salon where she said, you know, Trump leaked his, some of his plans purposely to Maggie Haberman in the New York Times so she would write a story about the threat. But that's not trickling down necessarily to voters across the country. I think some of these conversations are happening at, you know, a very high level, elite level with people who have subscriptions to these things. And and it's not necessarily getting through to the people that need to better understand it. I mean, honestly, as somebody who's worked at local TV stations in my career, I think some of these stories would be really hard to tell on local TV news. And I bet a lot of... Stations and 
also smaller newspapers and the like. It's not, you know, it's not in their remit. They're not, they're not doing it. But that's exactly where it needs to be being discussed because we need to just make sure everybody gets it. And right now, I mean, The Economist, that's great that they had that cover about him and that whole piece. But how many people really saw it that needed to see it? I guess you could say that about most news coverage, but I think in this particular case, we just we need a fire hose of information to share with more people. Mark, um, when you, Jennifer, and I heard Tara McGowan speak, who is behind the Courier newsrooms, um, she said that much of the mainstream media reporting is information for the already informed. In other exactly. words, you know, the, the, you know, the people who work for a living and have to take care of their kids and, you know, they've got to get to soccer practice, you know, they're not spending the time that you and Jennifer and me and Tara are looking at publications like the Washington Post and the, and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. What do you think about that idea that, that the real mainstream media is, um, Preaching to the choir, almost. Well, I think I think Tara is exactly right. You know, I'm uh, I'm writing my newsletter through Courier Newsroom, so I'm affiliated with them. And and she makes a great point. What she's trying to do is, she, uh, Courier has and now they're now in ten different states with local newsrooms. Uh, you know, reporters based in the states. It's not one of these things that's run out of Washington and doesn't have any local connections. It has plenty of local connections and. The reporters in those various states are writing local news stories, but they're not writing like thousand word, you know, treatises all the time. They're right there on, they're on TikTok, they're on Instagram, they're doing like 30 second videos. They're doing, they're, and their audience is the underreached people. It's people who may very well not vote. And, uh, and, and that's who they want to reach because that's who's not, who's not getting any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the problem. You know, we can be, and I, I certainly do criticize the Washington Post and the New York Times, but it, it's, but they're not, and these people who we really need to, who don't understand all this crazy stuff that Trump has said, uh, they haven't heard it or they just don't process it. They don't understand it. They're not, you know, they're not going to, it's not going to help them to have a front page story in the New York Times. I mean, it might trickle down. I still think the Times ought to do it because other newspapers and news sources mimic the Times. But you need to get to the people where they are, and they're busy picking up their kids from soccer practice and stuff like that. They're not, they're not news nerds like we are. And, and that's why the, the, I, I, would, I say progressives and the center-left people, like I consider myself at this point, um, have, have really kind of failed to reach out to people who are not – really active news consumers and, and, and then let them be a part of the whole uh, American electorate and the American system, you know, they, and, and, and putting paywalls behind political investigation stories like the Atlanta constitution journal did that, uh, did that with, uh, with um, Herschel Walker stories last, you know, last time when he ran, they had, they had a great expose on what a terrible candidate he was and they put it behind a paywall. What, what kind of service to the public is that? Mm-hmm. Well, the bottom line is that it's not, um, right. you know, 
But, you know, they they will argue. I mean, how many publications have you heard that look at the New York Times and say, you know, that's what we want to be? The New York Times has one of one of, if not the largest digital subscription base around and has figured out how to monetize things. And and uh, I don't see You know, I mean, the Washington Post did put all their covid coverage out there for anybody to read. Um, but I think that we're in a five alarm political fire and you're, you're at, you both are absolutely right that some of these major organizations need to really think about the long term mission. You know, I mean, if Donald Trump wins and he starts undoing the the press, they haven't done themselves any long term goals, any any long term, um, you know, favors. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And he's, he's talked about like he wants to punish MSNBC. So mm-hmm. he's clearly going to go oh, yeah. after the press. He's yeah. going to loosen. He wants to loosen. Uh, wants to loosen libel laws to make it easier to sue them. There's a lot of ways that he can. He can really you know, dismantle an independent press, and not that it wouldn't take him that long after he got into office. Right. And so, mm-hmm. so if, if they're not going to do it for the public, they, uh, the media needs to do it for self-preservation. Yeah. Guys, this has been a wonderful segment, as always. I hope you have a wonderful holiday and a great new year, and we will talk again in January. Woo-hoo! See you then. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mark Jacob and Jennifer Schulze. We're going to break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. Still keeping an eye on C-SPAN. Still no uh, vote on the President Biden impeachment inquiry resolution. Um, And we're going to keep an eye on that. It was the vote was supposed to be uh, held at approximately 430. Uh, C-SPAN is now predicting it's going to be... um, Closer to five o'clock. So there you go. We'll keep an eye on these things and let you know if anything happens. But one thing that absolutely positively did happen this week is Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky came to the United States. Uh, Republicans were becoming very, very recalcitrant in their desire or willingness to provide aid to Ukraine threatening to go home at the end of the week without having done anything. Um, President Zelensky made the trip to the United States to meet with members of Congress, to meet with President Joe Biden, and to try to remind people what was at stake here. To join uh, Joining us now to give us um, an expert um, take on the Zelensky visit and how successful it was or wasn't is our favorite political science professor, Joel Ostro of Benedictine University. He is an expert on Russia and he is our expert on all things Ukraine war. Joel, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Always enjoy being on with you, Joan. Thanks for having me. So was it was it <clears throat> worthwhile? I mean, you know, he may have done the only thing he could do, but do you think it made a difference? Uh, It does not look so immediately, um, other than uh, it seems, well, let's start with this. Uh, The Republican claim that the administration uh, included nothing about uh, our immigration uh, problems uh, and the mess at the border uh, is just a flat-out lie. 
because in the package that includes money for Ukraine, there's also money uh, targeted going towards supporting Israel and humanitarian relief uh, for Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, there is security assistance for Taiwan uh, and operations in the South China Sea, and also uh, more money ever allocated towards border security uh, than any uh, other budget package has ever contained. Uh, so let's get that out of the way first. Uh, it does seem that the administration is willing to consider um, uh, some kind of compromise regarding uh, either deportations or um, asylum applications and changes to that that might allow uh, some Republicans to vote yes. That's basically what the White House wants, is to get a handful of Republicans to vote yes, uh, and then it'll pass the House, and after that it would certainly pass in the Senate, despite uh, McConnell's uh, statements. I, I do believe that anything that gets passed through the House will get through the Senate. Um, there's no guarantee that'll happen. Uh, the House is scheduled to go on vacation on Friday, uh, and that's the reason uh, President Zelensky came. I think that the White House delayed his trip here. Uh, remember, there, were, there was talk of him coming a couple weeks ago uh, when uh, when that vote happened a couple weeks ago that was that was uh, defeated on this uh, aid package or this budget package. Um, and I think uh, uh, the White House probably signaled it was a bad time then and, and they needed to figure out what they could and could not do on the Democratic side uh, to provide still more to the Republicans to get this package through. What do you think is going to happen, Joel? It's hard to say, uh, Joan, because uh, the by, by making uh, electing Johnson as Speaker of the House, uh, the Republican Party is, is a full-blown, uh, most extreme uh, MAGA. That is the party now. Uh, Trump is the Republican Party. The extremist MAGA wing of the Republican Party is the Republican Party now. Uh, Johnson is a perfect representative of that, uh, a two-faced liar who doesn't care at all about policy, only cares about power. Um, early on in the war, he was critical of the Biden administration uh, for not doing enough to support Ukraine and not having a strategy to support Ukraine, not providing weapons that Ukraine needed to repel Russia. And then proceeded never once as he cast a vote for any bill that contained a dime for Ukraine. Uh, he's voted against everything. Uh, the entirety of the Republican Party is oriented simply to vote no on anything that the White House wants. Anything that a Democrat supports, they vote no. It doesn't matter what it is. It has no, no import to them what the consequences are for the country, for the alliance, for democracy here around the world. If Biden supports, they oppose. That is the entirety of their platform and their strategy. Um, and it is despicable uh, and it is unconscionable that they get any support from the American people. But they do. What do you think about this new... Um, the Let me tell you what I really think of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want Sorry. you to talk about this new report from the Institute for the Study of War. Yeah. Uh, yeah. About Putin's army. Talk about that, Joel. Yeah, yeah there was, a, and I first read it uh, as an article in the Independent, and I think it might have gotten some of this wrong. Uh, the Institute for the Study of War is is an interesting uh, organization. They they do uh, 
they have graduate programs uh, in security studies, um, uh, and it's it's an interesting uh, group of people that do, that's been doing um, amazing research and 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 reporting, uh, updating uh, on on the situation in Ukraine. Uh, this report comes from uh, uh, declassified United States intelligence assessments. Uh, so since the beginning of the war on February twenty four, twenty twenty two. Uh, Russia's lost 80% of the total number of ground troops uh, that they sent to Ukraine. Of 360,000 personnel uh, that have gone to Ukraine from that initial surge, uh, 315,000 are lost. Uh, I believe that is a combination of dead and wounded, uh, but, but taken out of the fighting. What that means is the remainder of their ground troops in Ukraine there's an estimate that as of September, there were some 400,000 or more in Russian-occupied Ukraine. Uh, the overwhelming majority of those uh, have little experience, little training, um, little capability, and thus we hear on a monthly basis uh, tens of thousands of Russian soldiers killed uh, in the fighting. In addition to that, they've lost two-thirds of the tanks that they sent in, uh, a third of their armed personnel carriers uh, that they sent in uh, since the full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine began. Um, those are devastating losses. Um, Russia has uh, done um, conscriptions and call-ups to try to replace the numbers of dead. They've, of course, released waves of violent prisoners uh, on condition that they go and fight in Ukraine. Uh, but what is notable uh, in the intelligence reports, as there is no evidence that Russia has made much progress in replacing those tanks or armored vehicle losses. Um, although their defense industrial base has gone on a war footing, and and that might change in the in the medium, short to medium term future. Well, then what's this I'm reading about? Some of the Republicans saying that part of the reason why they um, don't want to continue to fund Ukraine is because, you know, they were supposed to do this big offensive um, as as winter started coming. And they it really wasn't as as successful as it as it should have been. So implying that giving more aid to Ukraine might be throwing good money after bad. Well, it is true that there was some hope that the counteroffensive uh, would result in Ukraine reclaiming more territory than it's been able to. Uh, it's also the case that the United States and the West uh, were very slow to provide uh, Ukraine with the more modern tanks. Uh, those only started trickling in at the very end, uh, actually uh, after September, I believe. Um, and uh, we have yet to provide uh, any of the fourth-generation fighters, the F-16s and equivalents. Uh, so to expect that Ukraine would have made considerable uh, gains without any of that uh, was silly. It was all contingent upon them getting that influx of modern weaponry uh, sooner. That said, Ukraine has made territorial gains, particularly in the south. Uh, they've made them to the point where they've uh, crossed the Dnipro River outside of uh, Kherson, um, and are threatening Crimea, and it looks like they will be able to hold those positions uh, till winter comes and then through the winter. Uh, so that does put Ukraine on a very strong footing uh, to, to make that counteroffensive in spring, uh, with the caveat that Russia's forces will be more experienced and trained and they may have more weaponry themselves, so it won't be easy. Uh, but no matter what, if the United States and the West provide this next wave of munitions and weapons to Ukraine, uh, 
they will have superiority and possibly even air superiority over Russia, which would be decisive. What about all these gazillions of munitions that Russia is supposedly getting from North Korea? Isn't that making any difference? Uh, well, we keep I believe hearing, there are uh, a gazillion. I believe that is the official yeah. number, a gazillion. Well, we keep hearing about Russia's uh, missile attacks against Kiev again over the starting the last couple of weeks, um, which has everyone worried that it'll be a repeat of last winter when uh, Kiev and other major cities are without power, and, and that remains a worry for sure. Um, but so far, a hundred percent of those missiles have been destroyed, and and the damage that's happened has been from debris hitting the ground, and debris is not going to take out power plants. Um, that success, <coughs> excuse me, uh, really should only heighten the urgency for uh, providing Ukraine with the uh, munitions that it needs, because the success is demonstrable. Um, it's not throwing good money after bad. It is providing Ukraine with the ability to defend itself against uh, a genocidal Russian attack, something that Speaker Johnson, on one side of his face, has argued uh, is, is a priority and necessary. Uh, so um, I, I would hope that the White House and the Democrats would um, would make loud and clear those statements that he made uh, demanding that we do more and uh, ask uh, why, are, why, is he, uh, why is he not living up to his own demands. Yeah, really. I'm talking to political science professor Joel Ostro. He's at Benedictine University. We are going to continue our discussion right after a quick break. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm talking to political science professor Joel Ostro. He's with Benedictine University. We've been talking about the uh, remarkable visit by Ukrainian President Volodymyr, Volodymyr, Volodymyr Zelensky, easy for me to say, um, this week to try to put a little bit more pressure on Republicans not to just adjourn this Friday and go home and leave Ukraine funding to expire, but to actually do something. Um, uh, Joel, there was another point you wanted to make. I interrupted you. You want to finish? Yeah, so um, I was saying that uh, basically being critical of uh, the House Republican Party in particular, uh, but it seems like McConnell has taken the Senate in this direction again, where rather than policy in the interest of national security or in the interest of our democracy or in the interest of the American people, uh, they make policy in the interest of the Republican Party. Uh, and they have defined that uh, interest as being opposing anything uh, that the Democrats want. Um, so they they don't have any principles, they don't have any positions, they're strictly uh, about power uh, for power's sake uh, and, and not about policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that might come across as an extreme criticism, but it really fits in with what your uh, prior guests were talking about. That is that is the orientation of a, an authoritarian party, a party that supports dictatorship instead of democracy, uh, that 
uh, is geared toward arbitrary rule rather than principled rule um, and and that would be a direct threat um, to all the things that it, it, too many Americans have come to um, to assume uh, could never change. And among those, indeed, as you were talking about with your last guests, is, is uh, freedom of the press. Um, make no mistake that that a party that um, is is orienting pro-Russia right now um, is not just a threat to Ukraine. It's a threat to democracy uh, writ large in, in Europe and here at home. Um, Russia, as we know, at least dating to 2016 and really starting before that, has directly meddled in American elections. Uh, and... Um, you know, lots of evidence has shown was decisive. That meddling was decisive in electing Trump in 2016. Um, and were that to happen again in 2024, the, the results would be catastrophic here. Uh, but the Republican Party seems to be uh, not just tolerating that, but fueling it. Um, and uh, I agree with your prior guest that, um, that that the media have an interest in being the fourth estate and... and um, uh, and in in honestly reporting what's happening, uh, and not engaging in in false equivalencies and and, and equal time for all arguments, it's, it's, it's it, we're way past time the time for that. Yeah. Um, and I think that this Ukraine funding is a perfect example. Um, the Republicans should be called out for their hypocrisy, and and the Speaker in, is of the House is the leader of the House Republicans, and and he's been the loudest hypocrite of them all. One of the things that worries me about the current Speaker, Mike Johnson, uh, and I've said this repeatedly before, I think that he is deeply in over his head. Um, I've had experts say that he doesn't seem to understand how government works and how to get anything done. And I'm afraid that rather than take on any controversy or reveal the depth of his ignorance, <clears throat> he'll just say, you know what, uh, we're going to everybody's going to go home this Friday. We're going to take the holidays off and we'll just see how things are when we get back. I was talking to Congressman Bill Foster, who is, of course, a Democrat from Illinois. Mm -hmm. And um, he said that he was prepared to stay. He hoped that they would have a reason to stay. Um, mm -hmm. But there was the possibility, at least, that if uh, Congress adjourns and Ukraine funding doesn't get done till January and it, our funding mm -hmm. expires, he said at least in the short term, there was not the certainty, but the possibility that our allies in Europe or in other countries would be able to basically fill in for us until we could get our act together. What do you think about that? Or they will, or they will determine that the United States of America again is an unreliable leader and unreliable. Well, that, yeah, that ally goes without saying because that's other, exactly what would be the truth. Yeah, right. that would be the right. absolute and then, truth. And then we'll do what they need to do um, and make their own calculations about where their security lies, and that could also be capitulating uh, because they might determine that they don't have the capacity to provide the support that that could defend democracy, and so then it's about preventing invasion or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's very unpredictable. But whoever says that uh, Johnson doesn't know what he's doing, um, I vehemently uh, disagree with that. Really? Uh, uh, 
Yeah, I, I, like in the strongest possible terms. It's not that he doesn't know how to uh, run the House. Uh, he doesn't care about democracy. He doesn't care about uh, effective policymaking in our existing system. He is with the extremist authoritarian wing of the Republican Party, uh, which is just way too many a- adjectives. He is a Republican, and the Republican Party is anti-democracy and for establishing an authoritarian system here. People need to wake up. Um, this is not an extremist comment. This is calm observation of years and years of evaluating what they do and what they say. The Republican Party, at least the elected, the official Republican Party, from the Senate all the way down to local governments, as we saw played out during the 2020 election, uh, is committed to destroying uh, our normal functioning democracy. And Johnson is a leader of that. He was in 2020 after the election. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly why he's doing it. And that's what makes him supremely dangerous. It's not that he doesn't know how to make, how to, how to run the House for effective policymaking. It's that that is not what he wants to do. That is not what his party wants to do. There's a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, I agree. I agree that there's a, a huge difference in that. And that's what you just said is far more terrifying than what I just yep. said. Uh, though either one of those scenarios could result in Mike Jan- Johnson just packing up his little briefcase and his lunchbox and saying, you know, that's it. Um, we're, we're going away. Now, I don't, I got the impression that while the Senate also wants to pressure Joe Biden about putting in funding for the border in this any kind of package, I didn't get the impression that the Senate was ready to burn it all down. What was your impression? What is your impression? It it is hard to judge McConnell because he has certainly been squarely uh, a leader of that strategy of opposing a Democratic president at all costs, no matter what the costs are. Mm -hmm. Um, He certainly did that during the entirety of President Obama's second term, uh, quite vocally, clearly, purposefully. Um, At the same time, Uh, He and others have been pretty clearly consistent uh, in uh, trying to oppose those elements of the Republican Party uh, that support Putin's vision of Ukraine and everything that Russia does, Um, despite the appellation Moscow Mitch that he deservedly earned during the Trump administration. Uh, McConnell has been on, on the right side of this with Ukraine. It is possible that his current position simply reflects his understanding that nothing will get through the House without some appearance of a victory for the Republicans uh, on the border issue. Um, And uh, we can just wait and see. uh, But but it seems to me that this Republican speaker and this Republican Congress, it does not matter what the White House does, they are going to oppose it. Hmm. We'll see. Okay. Uh, Joel, thank you so much. I, I know that you've been busy with finals and, and grades this week. No, uh, and this happens to be the week that the Ukrainian president decides to come visit. So um, I really appreciate you uh, 
squeezing this in. Um, I appreciate it, you, Joan, and, and uh, I do think that either there will be a deal before Saturday uh, or uh, things are going to get really bad. And on top of that, another good note, the House Republicans have indeed formalized uh, they are going to open an impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden. Uh, Surprise Mm -hmm. to no one, but a disappointment to everyone. Joel, we've got to go. uh, Otherwise, I would just keep talking to you forever. (laughs) Uh, That's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at two o'clock. Have a great evening. Good night. (laughs) 